welcome to our online event, The Political Scar of Epidemics. My name is Paul de Grau. I'm a professor at the European Institute of the London School of Economics. And I'm very pleased to be here tonight to chair this event where um, a very important piece of research will be presented that uh, aims at um, finding out how epidemics in the past have affected trust in political institutions and this is of great importance for the current pandemic. The speakers today are um, well known. Um, first of all, we have Professor Barry Eichengreen, who is uh, George Pardee and Helen Pardee Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California, Berkeley. He was also a senior advisor at the IMF for uh, quite some time. Um, then the second speaker will be Dr. Sevat Aksoy, who is a principal economist in the office of the chief economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Develop Development in London, and is also a research fellow at the LSE Institute of Global Affairs. And then we have Dr. Okun Saka, who is an assistant professor in finance at the University of Sussex and a visiting professor, sorry, visiting fellow at uh, LSE's European Institute. So these three speakers will present their research and then we will have uh, two discussions. Uh, professor Chris Anderson, who is a professor in the European politics and policy at LSE's European Institute, and Dr. Anna Getmanski, who is an assistant professor of international relations in the Department of International Relations at LSE. Some practical information for those Twitter users in the audience. The hashtag for today's event is LSE COVID-19. The online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, subject to no technical difficulties, of course. And um, after the presentations and the discussions, there will be a chance for you to put your questions to the panel. Um, so when you want to submit your question, please use the Q&A feature, which is at the bottom of your screen. Um, the questions will then be submitted to myself and I will pose as many as I can to the speakers. Please let us also know your name and affiliation. And now I'm delighted to hand over to Professor Eichengreen, who will begin our event. Barry? Thank you, Paul. Um, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I know it's not morning everywhere. Uh, that served as a reminder that people are presumably dialing in and listening in from uh, around the world. Uh, the title of the paper and the presentation is The Political Scar of Epidemics. It's about the meta question of um, what the political consequences, the political fallout from the pandemic will be. Uh, that, of course, is a very, very large, very broad question. And we focus in this paper specifically on one aspect where we think it is already possible to marshal evidence and that we think is directly relevant to the COVID-19 crisis that's uh, now unfolding, namely, uh, how the pandemic will affect confidence or the confidence or trust that individuals 
uh, place in government, in political institutions and political leaders. We know that uh, trust in, in, in government and leaders is important for the ability of a, of a country and a society to mount uh, an effective response to the pandemic. Frank Fukuyama uh, put it recently, I think in Foreign Affairs as follows, that the key to success in containing an epidemic is whether citizens trust their leaders and whether those leaders preside over a competent and uh, uh, effective state. So that in, an, in, in a nutshell is why this uh, nexus of um, trust and uh, epidemic are important. Um, we know from uh, reading the, the, the newspapers, Anthony uh, Fauci of the Center for Disease Control in the United States reminds us that the secret to uh, containing the coronavirus is uh, uh, trust in one another. And uh, in addition, what we look at in, in this paper, trust in, in government and its leaders also uh, visible here. But there's uh, 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 another direction of causation as well. Trust in, in government and political leaders is not a given. Uh, it presumably is influenced by uh, the experience of the epidemic and observation of how government responds uh, to the epidemic. And there I think we uh, know less. We don't even know the, the sign of any effect of epidemic exposure or experience on trust in government. On the one hand, there's the rally round the flag hypothesis that as in any disaster or crisis, people rally around their government and, and their leaders. But there's also the possibility of alienation, disappointment, anger over the failure uh, uh, of containment, which may lead to a decline in trust and confidence. Nor do we know how long lasting such an effect might be. Is it a, a transitory response, whatever the sign, or is it uh, enduring? Um, there's anecdotal evidence that points in all of the above directions as uh, potentials. So uh, the Edelman Trust uh, has uh, argued on the basis of recent survey evidence from April that COVID-19 uh, gives rise to new trust in government. On the other hand, uh, there are those who question whether the coronavirus will kill what's left of faith in government. So one interpretation of the, uh, of the enduring effects of the pandemic is that it accelerates ongoing trends uh, and certainly de declining trust in government and its leaders is one of those trends that has been documented over the years by Gallup polls in the United States and Eurobarometer polls in, in Europe and so forth. So um, there is anecdotal evidence, again, uh, that perhaps uh, conflicting signals, perhaps disappointment over uh, success at containment is uh, leading to a decline in trust. So what we try to do in this paper is to pre present what we think is the first systematic evidence of 
the impact of uh, epidemic exposure. And we show that uh, epidemic exposure causes individuals to display less trust or confidence in their government, in their political institutions, governmental institutions, and leaders. And we argue that the fact of a negative effect is troubling because it points to the possibility of a vicious spiral in which lack of trust in government, uh, pre-COVID trend allows the epidemic to spread further and the, very, and, and the further spread of the epidemic in turn erodes trust in government and, and limits the ability of government to uh, cope with this and, and other emergencies going forward. So um, we started this project after the uh, eruption of the epidemic, but it should be said well before the current wave of anti-government, anti-police protests. We don't show this directly, but I for one would suggest that there's a connection between the failure of certain governments, like that of my country, to mount an effective response to the pandemic and what we now see in the streets in certain countries, again, like my, like my own. So what do we find specifically? Very brief summary, and, and then I will turn it over to uh, Seva to begin to describe how we find what we find. We find that individuals who experience epidemics in their impressionable years, uh, a term to which I will return, namely late adolescence to early adulthood, 18 to 25 years of age, display less confidence in uh, political leaders, governments, and elections. The effects are large. The effects are persistent. They last for on the order of two decades of life. The effects are specific to communicable diseases such as viruses uh, for which uh, timely and effective public policy response, timely is a key word here, uh, is especially important. The same thing we find for confidence in governments and political leaders is evident in confidence in the public health system, which suggests strongly that the effect is health related as opposed to a general decline in trust in all institutions. The effect is largest when individuals experience epidemics under weak governments, which are least capable of responding effectively to epidemics, a uh, point that we document directly, and the effect is driven by uh, individuals who experience epidemics in democracies. Uh, democracies are supposed to be responsive to voters and constituents, and including being responsive to their health needs. And uh, when, when democratic governments disappoint, uh, it is their uh, constituents that in particular respond by negatively revising their views of the trustworthy of those governments and institutions. Uh, a last word about uh, impressionable years. This idea that people in their formative or impressionable years, 18 to 25 years old, are those who are especially prone to revise their uh, trust in government as a result of as a result here of 
epidemic exposure. Other people have looked specifically at the impressionable years in other contexts, showing that people who experienced recessions between the ages of 18 to 25, for example, uh, significantly revised their economic behavior and their beliefs about the economy. And the same has been shown uh, in other studies that, that we list here about uh, views regarding other aspects of public policy, uh, extent of uh, um, political involvement, and so forth. This is referred to in the literatures uh, of psychology and sociology as the impressionable years hypothesis. Uh, it traces back to a study of uh, college students, Bennington College uh, women who graduated in the 1930s, and then, then they were followed all through life. And Newcomb and his co-authors showed that views that were formed in the impressionable years persisted over these students' lifetimes in trying to explain why the impressionable years are particularly important. People have, have linked this observation to Carl Mannheim's concept of the fresh encounter, that views are durably formed when uh, late as, as adolescents and early adults encounter new ideas or events for the first time. They've linked it to Eric Erickson's theory of identity, that you form your sense of self late in adolescence or early in adulthood. They've linked it to recent work in neurology, which describes um, neuro, neurochemical and anatomical differences between the adolescent and the adult brain. And they show that, or they uh, suggest that when those changes are afoot is when durable attitudes are formed. So I should emphasize here, and my co-authors will emphasize again, we test for the same effects of epidemic exposure uh, when people experience an epidemic when they're younger than the impressionable years. We test for uh, the same effect when they're older than the impressionable years. And we do not find the same thing, which uh, we think is really striking. Um, one last note, I've spoken about trust. I've spoken about confidence. I'm, I, we're gonna use those terms interchangeably, although in the public health literature where people talk about this as well, they tend to speak of confidence in institutions and trust in individuals, political leaders in the present context. So maybe the terms while very closely related are not exactly interchangeable. So with that, let me uh, pass the baton. Uh, thanks, Barry. Let me share my screen. So uh, now I will basically briefly talk about the data that we use to basically understand the, how epidemic exposure during the formative years affect uh, trust in political institutions. So our main data set is basically Gallup World Poll. Uh, in, the, in our main sample, we have about 750,000 respondents from 150, 142 countries uh, between 2005 and 2018. So we focus on three main uh, outcome variables or dependent variables. Uh, the first question goes as, in this country, do you have confidence in each of the following or not? How about 
honesty of elections. Second question is, is about the national government, confidence in the national government. And then the, the, and then the last question is about approval rating of the, the current leader of the country. And, and of course, we also know a wide range of demographic characteristics of the individuals who enter to these questions, as well as their labor market status and their household and individual income. And so if we want to look at the average confidence in elections uh, over our sample period, what you actually see is there's a lot of heterogeneity across countries. Uh, what is remarkable or the, the main pattern you observe is that Confidence in election is elections uh, is particularly high in European uh, European Union countries and and also in Canada. But when you look at uh, Latin American countries and also some of the African countries, confidence in elections uh, is particularly low. When we look at confidence in government, we we actually see that again in Latin American countries. Uh, confidence in government is particularly low, low actually in, in, in many countries, but uh, when we look at uh, some of the, the continental European countries and, and, and countries like Turkey and Russia, confidence in government on average between 2006 and 2018 is, is, is fairly high. Um, so what we do, we basically merge our global vertical data set with the data set on epidemics. So these data uh, come from MDOT International Disaster Database. What we focus on is the following. We focus on the number of affected people. So this is defined as the total number of people requiring immediate assistance during the period of emergency. So this is reported by MDOT. Uh, what we do for individuals, uh, we calculate their exposure to epidemic. Uh, by using this measure, which is number of affected people, and then we basically merge this with Gallup World Poll. And then to understand the underlying mechanisms of our results and to check some of the robustness, what we actually use, uh, we use several, several data sets. We use data on communicable and non-communicable diseases from Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. We use data from Welcome, Welcome Global Monitor. It is a, it's a, it's a very, very important data set because it allows us to have information on attitudes towards vaccines, as well as uh, public health system and doctors and nurses and so on. To understand the, to what extent government stability uh, matters for, uh, for basic responses uh, to epidemic and, and how basically that government stability affects uh, individuals confidence in political institutions, we use a uh, measure from International Country Risk Guide, uh, which basically uh, gives us an assessment of government's ability to carry out its declared programs and its ability, uh, its, its ability to stay in office. And to basically test our results in the context of COVID-19, what we basically do, we, we basically uh, use data from Google Trends uh, John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center that probably you we basically all hear in the in the news every day, as well as the uh, policy responses database from Oxford COVID-19 government response trackers. So when we look at briefly on the average epidemic intensity between 1970 and 2017, 
um, the pattern we observe is actually not very surprising. We find that in most of the sub-Saharan African countries, the exposure to epidemics is the highest, as well as some of the Latin American countries and East Asian countries. And, and what you actually observe, uh, exposure to epidemic is particularly low in, in developed countries, especially in continental Europe. So with that, I pass the, the, the talk to Orkun, and then Orkun will talk about our results and identification strategy. Thank you very much, Javad. Uh, let me share the screen. I'm guessing you can now see the screen. Uh, thank you, thank you very much for Jawad for describing this nice data set that we have, which I presume is probably uh, one of the largest data sets that we can uh, employ for this specific question on the on the political trust, how that gets affected by the by the epidemic experience that individuals um, have in their past. And what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to simplify the way that we reach our results. So. I'm going to try to kind of outline our identification strategy, but in a very simple form so that, you know, um, it's, it's understandable to, to, to also other uh, parts of our audience who are uh, not academics. So just imagine a country, a single country at a single snapshot as of now uh, in the year 2020. Uh, what you can see is here, we can rank those people with, with their ages from starting from 25, uh, let's say, up until, you know, uh, as long as uh, it, it can go. And on the left-hand side, you can see people, you can see the calendar years for the country, which are already passed, right? And for what we do is for each individual in our setting, we take that individual and we look at the years where this individual must have experienced their individual impressionable years. So for instance, for the first individual in our sample that we see here, the green one, uh, these eight years represent the years uh, that correspond to the impressionable years of that individual person, right? Which depends on the on the on the on the on the age of that person. And then we can actually repeat this for each individual. And as you can see, we have these rolling windows that go through the calendar year and that cover each individual's um, impressionable years, right? And as you can see, they are overlapping from time to time. But of course, as we go more and more with different ages. Uh, in, in the same country, we are gonna, we are gonna uh, roll further and there, there are gonna be cases where uh, the, these impressionable year windows are not even gonna correspond. And in this kind of a setting, what we do is we look at which years uh, these, um, um, which years these um, uh, epidemics uh, that we get from the MDOT database actually strike the country, right? So for instance, let's assume that it, it strikes the country at the year 2010. And what is, uh, what is uh, the average effect that we capture is in then simply the difference between the first group, which gets affected by this virus during their impressionable years. So it, it falls into the person with orange, red, and purple. And then we look at the other people who didn't really get affected by this virus, assuming that oh, this, is, you know, this is a simplified setting. We have just one virus and we have only these people in our setting. And then we take the difference between the first group who get exposed and the second group who didn't get exposed, right? So here, the good thing uh, or the nice uh, part of this identification strategy is that these people are all within the same country. So we can actually control for all country related factors in our setting.
to be able to exclude all reasons that may be related to the specific characteristics of the leader, of the government, of the nature of democracy within that country. Because all these people are facing the same kind of conditions, same kind of leaders, same kind of governments within those countries. So this, this helps us a lot in terms of isolating our effect from the, from the kind of reasons that may be related to the, to the specific uh, uh, characteristics of, of the leaders or the country. Okay, and of course, it's a simplified intuition. What we do is we generalize this to, to a multi-country setting with tools that can drive away, as I said, all country-specific factors. I'm not gonna get into the econometric details um, in, this, in, this, in this presentation, but we, we are able to basically, we can discuss further um, during, the, during the question and answer session, but we, we are able to basically control for all age-related or cohort-related generational factors uh, by employing this large uh, multi-country data set. And as results, what do we find? So I'm gonna show you some simple tables. I did my best to not to put tables in, in the presentation as much as possible, but I'm just gonna show you this first set of tables just so that you have an idea of you know, uh, what to look for when I go to the, the, go to the figure. So here, for all the, all the three outcome variables that we're looking at from elections, government, and the leader, uh, we are finding with different types of um, controls, we are all finding this very significant negative effects that correspond to, as Barry also mentioned, to five to 7% uh, lower trust for the remainder of, of the individual's lives. So when they get exposed to, a, to, to, to an epidemic um, at the time of their impressionable years, Compared to someone who didn't get exposed, they stay 5% lower, uh, at, the, at the level of 5% lower trust uh, for the remainder of their lives, okay? And of course, the, what, what's quite important here is to show that there is something specific uh, that relates to the impressionable years. So what we do here, we, we repeat our setting, but this time, rather than focusing on these, on these uh, windows, which show us the years when these people were between 18 and 25, we focus on different windows. So for instance, you can see that first we focus on, on the years, whether or not the people got exposed to epidemics and from the ages of two to nine or 10 to 17, 18 to 25, which is our setting, and then maybe a bit later, 26 to 33. And you can see that for those, of, uh, for those who are familiar with, with uh, statistical significance and confidence intervals, there is, there is no evidence to say that the, the behavior of the, of the people who get exposed before or later after the impressionable years, there's no significant evidence that say that you know, they behave different than the people who didn't get exposed. The only period seems to be the impressionable years. So that, that's, I think, quite a striking finding in our setting that says that this period is really important to, to durably shape uh, the, the, the individual's attitudes towards political institutions later in life. And I'm going I'm to show you something maybe a bit more uh, interesting when we divide our sample into subsamples based on the individual's age. So what we do here is that if you just focus on the, on the base, base uh, result here, uh, which shows you this uh, coefficient minus six, what we are doing here is to, to focus on the, on the age groups that just experienced their impressionable years compared to those groups, for instance, that are here on, on, this, on the right-hand side of the, of the figure, that, that experienced their impressionable years quite some time ago, right? So this helps us to kind of put a distance between the, between the experience window and, and, the, and the time point where we are surveying, where we are measuring these people's attitudes. And 
what we see here is that the effects are much larger. The effects that we, sh that we have shown you with the tables, the average effects, they are actually three times larger when we look at the very uh, early age windows. And then as the time passes, as the individuals age over time, as you can see, the effects, the, the effects are gradually dying out, uh, but still quite persistent up until uh, 10, up until uh, 19 years after the impressionable years window. So here you can, of course, you are seeing the 10 year, but what we are comparing is the median age for the sample that we are measuring here and the median age for the impressionable year window. I'm gonna go a bit more quickly. So what we do is we also check what happens when the epidemics occur and at the same time, these people had a weak government in charge who was really not able to respond appropriately to the, to, the, to the epidemic. And when we look at that, you see that the, the individuals who experience epidemics on their weak governments, they're actually the ones who are suffering the most from, in, in, terms of, in terms of lower trust in the remainder of their lives. And, and this uh, lower trust persi persists even after the 19 years period, which I showed you in the previous graph. And of course, one, one, one uh, caveat of our uh, setting is that we do not really know how exactly governments responded to these past epidemics because there is no data set yet about this. What we do is we try to use this big government uh, measure to be able to predict how the government must have responded, right? But this also has to be tested uh, to, to make sure that this, act, this measure is capturing what we think is capturing. So what we do is we turn to the recent COVID-19 setting and we look at how countries, individual countries, performed in terms of their, in terms of their uh, COVID-19 response. So here, what you see here uh, is the South Korea with the government strength measure of 8.25, which is relatively high in our sample. And we are, uh, we are tracking here uh, both the number of deaths, as you can see with, 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 the, with the dashed uh, window, sorry, uh, with, the, with, the, with the solid line, and also with the, with the dashed line, you are seeing that uh, you are seeing the number of searches on Google in terms of uh, as, as it relates to the, to the, to the COVID-19. And as soon as the searches are um, going up, there is the first policy introduction in South Korea, which is just 11 days after the first case was observed, right? And when we compare this to, to countries in, in Europe, for instance, France, what we see here is that the first case and the first that, the, the, the time that it takes between, sorry, the, the, the time that it takes between the first case and the first policy is 36 days, strikingly more uh, or longer uh, than it took for South Korea. And when we look at um, the United Kingdom, it's much, much um, longer than the previous two cases. And here, again, an interesting thing to see is that this uh, government strength score is actually quite low compared to the previous uh, two countries in the United Kingdom. Of course, this is very anecdotal. Uh, and what we do is we also systematically test this uh, by looking at 72 countries in our setting and uh, controlling for various things. Obviously here, when we are doing the comparison, we are comparing an Asian country which may have had experience in the past with the epidemic. So they, that may increase their response time. What we do here is that we control for all the uh, continent related uh, effects all the specific country-related effects, their past experiences with the, in, in, the, in the past 20 years with the epidemics. And we look at whether this uh, government weakness measure we have is actually predicting the amount of time that it takes for these governments to respond 
to, to COVID-19. And it seems that as the governments, as the governments become more strong, the, the amount of time that it takes for them to respond to the, to the, to the outbreak is actually going, uh, going much lower. So this is basically a confirmation that um, the, 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 the figure that I showed you um, in, the, in, the, in the previous case here is actually capturing what we think is capturing, which is the, the, the policy response of the government. Uh, and when the government actually fails in terms of policy response because they are weak, then uh, we see this increase or magnified effects on the, on, the, on the trust of the individuals. So we have many other tests and robustness checks that I'm sure we will come, to, we will come back to as, as our discussions go. But if anything, um, I would like you to take as, the, as a key uh, takeaway from, uh, from, from this presentation, from, from our study, is that when, when individuals actually get uh, uh, an epidemic experience, when they, when they are in their youth, when they are just developing their, their beliefs about politics, when they are just developing their, their beliefs about general life, they actually, this, this actually affects uh, the, the epidemic experience, especially when the, when, the, when the government fails to respond properly. This affects their, um, their political trust in the remainder of their, of their lives, and at, at least for, for two decades, as we have shown. So thank you very much. I think I'm going to stop here, and then we can pass to Chris. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Orkun, and also Barry and Sevat for this uh, presentation, which is uh, the result of very interesting research. Uh, uh, we will now have uh, the discussions, um, and um, I will start with uh, Chris Anderson, and then um, Anna Getnansky will take over. Chris? So on the fly, Anna and I were trying to coordinate in the background. Um, I was going to have uh, Anna go first if she wanted to. Um, if, that, if that's technically possible, that would be great. Okay. No, for me, no problem. She has much smarter things to say, so I'll, I'll just finish off. Yeah, I, I used the uh, alphabetical order, right? That's, uh... All right. Okay. Uh, let me share my screen. Um, so I uh, tried to summarize some thoughts that I had about this paper when I was reading it. Um, so first of all, um, I want to highlight two things that, two major things that I think we we'll learned from this paper. Um, first is that for me it was surprising to see how common epidemics are. Um, because we usually talk about natural disasters such as earthquakes or droughts or floods. Uh, but it was um, very interesting to see that epidemics are actually very common. And in fact, in the last 50 years, there's not a single country that is not affected by, uh, by an epidemic, uh, according to your data set. So I think it's, um, it, it puts the current events in, in some perspective and allows us also to learn from past experience, which is exactly what your paper is uh, trying to, um, uh, to contribute to. And the second point that I think is very interesting and very important is that Epidemics are usually uh, perceived as um, objective medical conditions uh, and therefore um, there is this assumption that there are some medical or professional objective solutions to it. Uh, but what comes out of your presentation is um, that political factors shape how governments respond to it. Political factors in fact are central to, uh, to how governments respond to epidemics. 
Um, and also epidemics have profound political consequences and apparently there are also long-standing political consequences. Um, so I think these are two major contributions that um, allow us to see also current events in some uh, more um, broader perspective. Um, I want to highlight some comments that um, I have, and these are not necessarily critical comments towards the paper, but these are just thoughts that I had when I was reading it. Uh, my first reaction was that this paper is very much relevant for um, um, key debates about democracy. Um, and um, so in, in canonical or traditional understanding of democracy, um, uh, usually assumes that um, voters are uh, partially aware or unaware fully uh, about the preferences and the competence of the politicians. And they evaluate past behavior and try to uh, make inferences about how politicians are going to behave in the future. And so policy outcomes such as, for instance, unemployment or economic crisis or pandemics um, are viewed as cues that inform voters. And then voters can decide in elections whether to keep the incumbents or to vote them out. Um, and um, it, it, it is a traditional view, but there are many challenges to this view. And so one of them um, is um, research by Chris Aiken and Larry Bartels that basically suggests that voters uh, are easily swayed by uh, things like shark attacks, or pandemics or uh, others showed that um, events such as uh, victory of a national team in a football game uh, can actually affect how people vote in elections. And, and this sort of like brings up the, the question of whether voters are rational. And uh, what you sort of like show here is that events such as epidemics um, affect voters, but then the question is why? Is it something that is informative uh, about politicians, and if so, how and should voters actually be affected by such things? So I think it's a it's it's a big question about how we understand democracy and how um, uh, how we, we think about it. Um, and I think uh, your paper might benefit a lot from from connecting to these types of debates. That sort of that was like my first uh, comment. Um, and now I have more specific comments about the content of your paper. Uh, so first, I was wondering. So you report the results about um, that, that, that um, you highlight the effect of exposure to epidemics for uh, people who are between the age of 18 and 25 during the epidemic. But the question is, how does it scale up to the national level? So we don't know much about what is the share of this group in the total population and um, um, whether uh, it indeed has a much um, broader effect uh, on the level of political trust or the level of political approval for incumbents in their countries. So it would be interesting if you could also perhaps offer some analysis of the larger effects of, of epidemics um, at, the, at the national level. Um, another thing that uh, I think is, might make your findings more applicable or more interesting is if you analyze uh, outcomes beyond trust. So, for instance, you find that um, certain individuals have lower trust uh, in elections, but then the question is whether they're still willing to vote in elections. So I don't know much about this data set that you're using, but to the extent that it has questions about participation in election, I think it would be interesting to actually analyze those questions. Um, the, um, the, the, the individuals, the, the, this age group between 18 and 25. Um, so you, um, as well as many other studies, 
present this as um, impressionable years and uh, one of the explanations for why experiences in these years have such profound effect is because people don't have strong priors. Um, I think there might be an alternative explanation that doesn't have anything to do with necessarily um, um, values or priors, but it has something to do with very objective experiences that people have. Um, so this is also the period when individuals enter the job market and to the extent that their country suffers from a pandemic, it might affect their chances or it might make it harder for them to obtain a job and it might shape um, their um, attitudes regardless of um, some broader uh, neurological or um, um, some broader um, ideological positions. Um, I was also wondering about your measurement of exposure to, to epidemic. So as you uh, measure it now, you focus on the number of people who are affected by epidemic. And by affected, you mean also people who require assistance. And I was wondering if uh, you also considered alternative measures uh, that focus more on fatalities. Because if your argument is that uh, bad performance by the government during the epidemic leads to um, lower trust, then uh, the level of fatalities might get you um, a better measure of, of bad performance rather than just the number of people who require assistance and food, shelter, and medications. Uh, another sort of like comment is that um, uh, since you're analyzing political outcomes, I was wondering how partisanship and partisan idea, uh, partisan idea or ideology affects uh, how individuals are, are um, affected by epidemics. Um, and the ideology of the government in power during the epidemic uh, might also have a lot to do with, with how epidemic affects positions. And finally, um, so your paper is about past epidemics, but the current uh, situation that we're facing, it's a pandemic situation where a lot of countries are simultaneously affected uh, by uh, health emergencies. And um, so I was wondering uh, wh what you think about the uh, implications of, whether implications of pandemics might be different from implications of epidemic. Because uh, if an individual observes other countries facing similar difficulties, they might not necessarily blame their government or their institutions. So the effect of pandemics on trust might actually be um, quite different from effects of epidemics. So these are some of my comments and um, I'm happy to um, pass, um, pass it on to, um, to, to Chris. Okay, Chris, yeah. Great, thank you very much, Anna. Okay, let me see if I can share my screen and then I'll show you some pictures. Hopefully you can see this. So um, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to talk about this paper. Um, I, I just marvel at the time we're living through. It's such an unusual time and I'm trying to get my head around how unusual it is. Um, writing a paper about the impact of epidemics on uh, government trust in the middle of a pandemic, um, it seems almost like writing a paper on why countries go to war in January of 1940. Um, it just seems like we're doing it in real time. We're experiencing a pandemic globally as, as we go through these days. 
and all the while we're trying to do research to understand and get our head around what is happening to us. Um, and so I, I applaud the authors for the, not just the speed with which they've done this work, but also the great care that they've taken and the thought they've given to this, to this question. Um, and as it always is with research in real time, there are things to, you can complain about and you can quibble about, you can question. Uh, but I think as a, as a sort of, as a first uh, attempt at this, it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting paper and I recommend people read it. It's a very ambitious question, a very ambitious project in terms of scope. Um, uh, attacking a, a big question. Um, and it's always dangerous, I think, for economists to get political scientists to comment on their work and vice versa. Um, and I'm somebody who studies uh, people's views about government and I'm a political scientist uh, uh, by training and inclination. Uh, and I do comparative cross-national work. So of course, I find this super interesting um, and, uh, and, and it raises all kinds of really interesting questions for me. But what it fundamentally tells us, I think, is that the impact of epidemics on people's, let's call them political opinions, is asymmetric. Just like the impact of the current pandemic is asymmetric uh, on so many subpopulations. What we learn here in this paper is that uh, the epidemic um, responses really by government, but epidemics lower support for governments, let's call it that way, um, call it that for, for just a second. But, but that effect is conditional. Right? It's asymmetric. It, it, it's it different uh, for different kinds of diseases. It's only infectious diseases, not uh, non-communicable diseases, not across the board in terms of socio-demographic groups, uh, only for a subset of countries. Um, and it goes away after a while. Right? So we, what we learn here is that this isn't permanent and affects everyone in the same way. It's actually quite conditional on a number of factors having to do with us, who we are as human beings, and uh, who we are and where we are in life and, and, and what our characteristics are, but also the context in which we experience this, uh, this condition, whatever that condition is, right? So in that sense, it's, it's a really nice setup that is very nicely contextualized in terms of compar comparative research. Um, and uh, so far, I don't have a lot that I think is wrong with the paper, but it, it raises some questions for me. Um, and the questions that it raises primarily revolve around some of the building blocks of the project that have to do with this basic sort of fundamental sort of assumption of the fundamental motivation around trust. And the fundamental motivation feels right, sounds right, that when governments don't respond well to epidemics, uh, trust uh, in government should go down. But then the question for political scientists is always trust in whom or what? Uh, there's a large literature, an old literature on uh, going back to David Easton on diffuse versus specific support uh, for political institutions or leaders. Um, and it's not entirely clear to me that we were there yet in terms of figuring out whether the pandemic should affect uh, trust, which is a sort of more deeply held stable set of beliefs, um, or whether it has to do with whether we like the incumbent, whether we think they're doing a good job and whether they're trustworthy. Uh, and competent. Um, so there's this question around what is the dependent variable here and what does it mean conceptually and what is it then that you in this project are capturing uh, with your measures. Um, there's the question of does it matter? I, I know Barry started out by saying, look, uh, Francis Fukuyama told us something that trust is really important and I know um, uh, that, that, that carries some weight. Um, but I don't know that there's a whole lot of research that tells us um, whether trust really 
matters uh, in the way that we think it does. Um, and so, yes, it, it could very well be that it's important for the capacity of society to organize a collective response. But um, I want to know what it is, for instance, uh, as you go forward in this project, what is the behavior that you would expect to observe um, these 18 to 25-year-olds to engage in five years down the road, 10 years down the road, as a function of having been exposed to the epidemic, not just um, this, this sort of vague concept of trust. And primarily, really, I'm interested in the story behind it. Um, there's presumably there's something here that governments did or didn't do. And that affects how people form beliefs down the road about governmental authorities. But these governmental authorities aren't necessarily the same ones who were in power at the time the epidemic happened, right? Governments turn over. Um, citizens do not compare the impact of an epidemic to what it could have been, right? So we don't think 2 million people could have died in the US and now it's only quote unquote going to be 200,000, therefore the government performed well. So it's not exactly clear to me what the benchmark is by which an 18 to 25 year old should compare or judge um, a government's response. Um, and it produces this effect only in this very specific group, which is sort of interesting. And we've talked about the impressionable years and I find that to be a really interesting um, group of, of people. So when a crisis happens, when a moment of shock occurs, when an epidemic sweeps the nation, um, what does it really mean for the generation of 18 to 25 year olds, right? That's all of your 18 to 25 year olds in the country to experience that. Presumably that is largely going to be a mediated experience. They're not all going to get sick. They're not all going to need food and shelter. They're not all going to need medical attention. So how is this experienced? How is it communicated? Um, what does that really mean as a mediated experience? But then also, it's a moment of learning about the government, right? We learn in real time in this moment about the British government's response to the COVID crisis. Now, that's not really what you say you're studying, right? I think you're saying there's a moment of eight years. And a moment of eight years is a pretty long moment. And I'm not so sure how well it matches up with this idea of crisis that I associate in my mind with this notion of epidemic. So I wanna know exactly what the exposure is and what it means, and then what it means to be impressionable. Um, there's a lot of literature in political socialization um, that would pinpoint the years of learning about politics at an earlier time in the life cycle. Um, it would probably put it somewhere around 12 to 14 years. Um, and so it's interesting to me to see this contrast between what you refer to as the impressionable years and then I think what people in political socialization research would think about as being the learning years about politics. I would have expected that those are the, that's the generation where you would have seen a big effect, but that's not really that important. The, the more important question I have is actually, um, why is it a bad thing? Why is it a bad thing that 18 to 25 year old go through their next two decades being more critical of their government. There's a literature in political science that talks about dissatisfied Democrats as stabilizers for democracy. This is a really interesting moment. If you think about what you've gone through as a citizen right now, we as citizens get to hold governments accountable. In order to hold them accountable, that requires a kind of critical mindset. It requires a kind of suspiciousness. Are they doing enough? 
are they doing a good job? And so this, uh, this assumption, this basic assumption that lower support or a more critical attitude, you might say, uh, about incumbent authorities down the line may not necessarily be such a terrible thing. Um, scarring is another interesting element that you bring to bear. You sort of say, uh, epidemics leave a scar. These shocks leave scars. Um, and there's an interesting literature in psychology, of course, about the impact of adverse life events on people's happiness. Um, if you go through the work of Ed Diener and, and people like that. And so what's interesting about that is, you know, lo losing a loved one, getting divorced, um, getting sick and so on, uh, tends to lower one's uh, intercept essentially, right? Um, and, and oftentimes it does come back to, to the old level, but it doesn't necessarily. And immediately when I saw this research, I thought of the scarring literature in, in psychology. And I thought maybe there could be some interesting connections for you to make to that literature as well. Um, and um, let's see. What's interesting to me about this question here is what kind of scarring occurs when that injury isn't personal but collective, right? Because I think because it's a mediated experience that we have, for instance, with COVID-19, very few people actually know other people who are dying or are sick. Um, what does it mean for a, for a collective to be under threat rather than us individuals? And then finally, I, I applaud you for um, the work you've done by tackling something, taking a very broad global view of things. I, I do firmly believe that we will hear a lot about um, how different countries have done in the pandemic, why the, we've seen the responses we've seen. We've already seen the popular press, uh, all kinds of mention about countries that were led by women, for instance, or the Scandinavian countries and so on, and how they responded to the crisis as opposed to um, leaders with more testosterone. Um, so the, the idea that there's lots of insight to be gained from global surveys, comparative work, I think is right. Um, the devil's in the detail. Um, the nuts and bolts of this really matter in terms of kind of things like measurement and, and what have you. And I won't bore people with that. I've spent a little bit of time talking about that already. Um, so I'm just going to sort of say um, a couple of last things. Um, one thing I think that um, wasn't quite clear to me as I was reading the paper is what you meant by a weak government. I think as I was reading through the paper, I thought you were talking about state capacity. I thought you were talking about a state's ability to harness its resources to deal with and manage a, an epidemic. I don't think that's really what you're testing in the paper. I think you're more testing something along the lines of government stability, right? So if one of the indicators is whether it has popular support, a legislative majority and can sort of stay in office. That's not exactly the same state capacity. So I was wondering about how you've thought about, have you thought about this idea of state capacity and how it um, plays into all of this. But beyond that, I was just blown away. I was fascinated by the research. Um, I think this, uh, there's lots of interesting things that people can take from it. And I think also some really interesting uh, lessons to be learned. So thank you very much. And I look forward to the discussion. Okay, thank you, Chris. Thank you also, Anna, for these thoughtful comments. I propose we, we now uh, give the floor, if I may use the word the floor, um, to the, the three speakers to respond to these various comments that I think are, are quite interesting. Who would like to start? I never hesitate. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, this is not the, uh, the three co-authors first rodeo. We've written a paper together before, but it's our first time on Zoom, all three of us together. So I'm not quite sure how we're gonna handle this. Thank you to the commentators. Uh, we have to circle back to you and get all those references, uh, such as the benefit of having people from different disciplines. Uh, a couple of quick uh, responses. There was the, the question about what the impressionable years are picking up exactly, entry into the labor market and, and uh, worse economic outcomes. We control for economic status uh, using a bunch of variables and, and uh, uh, it, it, it's not uh, the state of the household finances or employment status that is driving our result. It's almost true, but not quite true that all the countries in the sample experience some epidemic exposure since 1970. There are some a handful of counterexamples evident in that earlier map. We do look at the number of, of fatalities, the um, severity of, uh, of the epidemic, and it turns out that what matters is not simply the fact of an epidemic, but how severe it was. Um, we don't look at a partisan ideology. I'm not sure whether we could code it or it's been coded for like 140 countries, but we could look. Um, your point about scaling up the effect, how many people were in, uh, uh, exposed to uh, an epidemic in their impressionable years in, in a given country, and how is that likely to affect trust in government nationwide overall is important, and I think we should do that. Um, trust in who or what, uh, not in the military, not in the media. This seems to be quite specific to uh, healthcare, certainly uh, in, in the health system and in uh, government uh, institutions. Um, how will the decline in trust affect subsequent economic and political Behavior, Chris, we can't answer that one yet because that's the subject of the next paper. Uh, but I, I, I do think there uh, is a strong argument to be made here about uh, lack of trust in government is a bad thing when you're hit with a shock like this because people experiencing an epidemic in their impressionable years are presumably less likely to take the government's advice about social distancing or vaccination when uh, another such event occurs in the future. Thanks, uh, maybe Okun or Sevat? Uh, I, can, I can quickly answer Anna's point on whether we looked at the subsequent outcomes like voting. Uh, as Barry just mentioned, we have a follow-up paper, but now at the same time we are using European Social Survey to look at whether actually people who who were exposed to epidemics voted in the in the last elections and on the, also in the previous elections. So we we are basically exploring this. That's something we can look at. Uh, there's a chance that we can also expand this to Afrobarometer. Uh, we will need to double check whether there's a question on voting behavior. Um, so that's basic. That's basically in our to-do list, and we are we are working on this. Uh, I'm going to maybe add one or two points. So what, 
one thing that's unmentioned, I think, is is one of the major things in our in our mind how to how kind of uh, identify channels that leads to this lower trust. Is it the economy? Is it you know? Is it is it something else? So um, so far, um, the way that we identify the the epidemic exposure is at the country level. So we are not really. Uh, able to see whether this person was individually affected or whether this person's family was affected. There is no such thing, right? So we, we are only able to see what happened in that country when this individual was living impressionable years in that country, right? Um, so what we did was some simple checks, which were, you know, um, quite uh, standard in the previous literature, basically checking for the same period in that country, uh, what is the condition in terms of GDP per capita, growth, uh, in terms of various political risk factors that we get, again, from different indices, these do not seem to matter really uh, when we check. Of course, they're not like super good proxies to, to, to understand what happened to the individual person, but at the country level, at least, uh, when we check those proxies uh, during the same period, during the same impressionable year window, uh, they don't seem to be uh, mattering that much and they don't also change the, the main effects that we find for, for the epidemics. Uh, and one maybe point on on what um, Chris mentioned. So in terms of what is approval and what is trust. Um, so it, it's true that approval is, is is a different concept from from the from the trust. But we we think it we think of it as an input that kind of goes into the approval, right? We we think of trust. So I need to have the trust to approve someone first. So kind of like a precondition. To, to, to the approval. And what is quite interesting here is that I think uh, is the fact that we are identifying this effect independent of who is in charge in that, gov in, in, in that government or you know, in that country as a leader. So I think that's quite interesting because we, all the people uh, with, with, with our treatment group and on, you know, uh, with the control group, they're all facing towards the same leader. So it's not really uh, it's not really the specific approval rating of that leader or the government that matters, but it seems that there is some permanent that goes into the approval that gets, in a way, that gets damaged, and then that, that goes on persistently for a while. Um, so yeah, all, all other comments are amazing, but I think we, we also need to spare some time for the, for the questions and answers from the audience. So thanks a lot for the, for the comments. Okay, thank you, Okun. Um, I think now is the time to open uh, the floor to, to questions from the audience. And, and I have um, five questions for the moment. So let me start out uh, immediately. Um, the first question is from Oliver Turton from the Grammar School at Leeds. Um, and here's the question. There are many economic shocks that cause a sudden fall in the population's trust in the government, recession, war, epidemic. Instead of this trust slowly recovering as the economy starts to grow again, are there any positive shocks that cause a rapid gain in confidence in the government? Who wants to take that up? The only one I can think of immediately is winning a war, generally speaking, has done that for uh, trust and approval of, of leaders. Um, so. Um, but that doesn't seem like a really good prescription uh, to engender good sort of healthy democratic life. So, um, uh, yeah, aside from that, not sure. World champion in football. Well, so I, I can <laughs> I recall 
also the response to 9-11 in the United States, which was the rally around the flag effect, mm. but it was strikingly short-lived. Anna, you wanted to? I wanted to mention a victory in football. Oh, okay. Football, yeah. But it's short-lived, I guess. <laughs> That's my... It's really hard to move the intercept over a, a long period of time. So these tend to be episodic rather than sort of structural changes in people's views of their government. Right. Maybe I can add something. Uh, there, there was a discussion yesterday also with uh, Tim Bezzi and Margaret Levy uh, on one of the LSE public events. And they were also discussing, you know, what affects trust and, you know, how, what, what impacts the government's response. So very similar topics. And uh, what was quite interesting is something that Margaret Levy said is that um, the, the trust is really to build up, right? So when you're going, to, you know, up on, on when, you, when you're going on, you know, when you're trying to build it up, it's, it's really hard for the governments to kind of get it, get it, get it uh, towards the upper end. But when, when it crashes, it really crashes all of a sudden. So in that sense, I'm not sure if we can treat the positive and the negative shocks in the same way. I think there is an asymmetric uh, type of response. Okay, good. Uh, let me turn to the next question of Alex Green from LSE. An interesting question, I think, uh, which is the following. Given that the 18 to 25 age group is less affected from a health perspective in the COVID um, drama, um, do you expect COVID to have a greater or lesser effect on trust? I don't think we can answer that. We don't know the age profile of the fatalities from the different epidemics that um, are, are in the MDAP data set. Uh, it, it's, I agree, it's an interesting question to ask. I'm not sure we're in a position to answer it. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can speculate. Oh, you don't want to speculate on this. No, I would Maybe. say, I mean, the young people are less affected from a health, health perspective, but at the same time, schools are shut down. So if you are in school, your experience with the education system, it's definitely, it, it, it has gotten worse. Labor market is not looking great. So if you just finish your undergrad or your master's, you are in the labor market and probably you will start applying for PhD programs, which, is, which all of a sudden it's got very competitive. Um, so maybe from the, in terms of likelihood of getting the coronavirus, yes, the young people are doing well. But if you think about the broader uh, scale, I think the young people are really, really uh, badly affected by the COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe I, I yeah. may add something. So that this again goes back to, you know, Anna's point in terms of what are the channels that are driving this, this lower trust in these young people. And I think a, a big portion of that could, could be the job market circumstances and or econo economy and other, other things. But at the same time, to the extent that the, this depends on the impression that young people get about their governments, about the state of affairs in their country, about the political system itself overall, it, it doesn't really matter whether they're, whether they're individually infected by the virus or whether their families you know, or, or whether they lose someone to the, to the virus. I think it, it, to the extent that our results are driven, which I think <laughs> a, a big part of the story is the impression that, that this uh, pandemic response creates on, on the young people, I think they will still be uh, suffering from, from lower trust. Okay, thank you. Next question comes from William Ferguson from Grinnell College. 
under control for subnational variables such as rural versus urban residents in your research? Yes. Okay. That's all. <laughs> Anything you want to add to this? Uh, does it make a difference, uh, rural versus urban? It does or? make a difference. We find uh, that the uh, effect is much stronger if you're an urban resident. Uh, if, if you think that fear of contagious spread is part of what's going on here, that would seem to make sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there any interaction with uh, the age group or not? Uh, you didn't look into this. I don't recall that we broke down urban rural by age group. Okay. Then uh, next question is from Alvaro Pereira. Did you find any relationship between pre-epidemic regional political stability and people's views? The experience of a stable or unstable neighbor country in the epidemic could also influence people's perceptions. I think this was related to an earlier question about the difference between epidemics and pandemic, right? Uh, no, we, di I d we didn't look at uh, uh, government characteristics pre-impressionable year epidemic exposure um, could be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one, one of the things actually that's in our minds, which is kind of, uh, which is going to take some time to kind of gather the data and put them together, but uh, basically to look at what's happening in the neighbor countries when these epidemics are occurring. So that could also tell something in terms of, you know, how people judge their own country's performance vis-a-vis -vis other countries' uh, performance at the same time simultaneously. So that could tell us about that channel, whether the, the benchmarking uh, with other countries is, is important. It's hard to know how to define neighboring countries who to benchmark off of, but it does get directly to the point about epidemic versus pandemic. Yeah. Hey, Chris, you wanted to? I was, I was going to say, this is such an unusual moment. I cannot recall uh, many other moments uh, in my lifetime where voters, citizens have been able to benchmark in the way that we're currently benchmarking. Um, certainly that's the case here in Europe. I haven't been in the US recently, uh, but there clearly is a lot of information out there about when governments did what, where, uh, kind of death rates, infection rates, and so on. It's just a really interesting and unusual moment where the benchmarking is no longer just sort of retrospective or regional within my country, but now it's becoming this international comparison. Um, it's, it's fascinating because we t generally tend to think that voters are extraordinarily national, right? Uh, inward focus, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I have a question of David Walter from Burbank. Um, it's a question addressed to all of you. How will the political and pandemic effects on young people affect matters on social care in increasingly aging industrial nations? That's quite a broad question. Do you want to go into this? I'm not sure that the uh, um, results in, in, in the paper speak directly uh, to that. Um, 
insofar as trust in government declines, uh, will there be uh, sufficient trust for government to deliver health care, elder care, child care, and all, all, all the social services uh, for which there will be increased demand? Well, there will be increased demands, and I think some questions about the integrity of uh, the supply. So drawing, also drawing on the previous uh, empirical research, what, what we actually observe is that people also who experience financial crisis during the formative years, uh, they become then, after, afterwards in their lives, they become pro-redistribution. Uh, so, of course, we cannot directly talk about this in our paper because we don't have the, the right outcomes. Uh, but linking the previous literature to the COVID context, it's, it's probably possible that people who experience a uh, pandemic today probably will become more uh, pro uh, redistribution. And just more broadly speaking, so if you want to speculate wildly uh, about the moment, the nation state is back in an interesting way uh, because the pandemic currently certainly is being managed by uh, national infrastructures, na nation states, where we've seen this here in, in, in the European Union, European Union doesn't really have authority to deal with these kinds of crises, but it's, it's, it's national health systems uh, that, are, that are in charge of, of addressing this. So in, in an interesting way, it's sort of drawn the attention back to our national governments and what they're up to um, in ways that I think few of us had anticipated. Uh, it may of course spur then on the other side uh, an effort to Europeanize some of these capacities um, because of course the the virus doesn't stop at the border. Um, but I think it's really interesting to see how much the state is now back and we need the state and we want the state and we recognize the state has a role to play. And expertise is back. Scientists are back in a way I think that they they weren't previously. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. So two points about that. One would be that um, Chris is right, except for the American exception, where 50 states are back and the federal government is missing in action. So uh, the U.S. is different as it uh, has been uh, throughout its history. And uh, secondly, you give us an opportunity to flag, to, uh, to flag the previous paper in the series, which is kind of how we started down this path, uh, which is that a related survey uh, asks respondents about their confidence in scientists and uh, the enterprise of science uh, itself. And pandemic exposure does uh, increase respect for um, trust in science as an enterprise, but not for individual scientists who, who are less likely to be seen as working in the public interest in giving uh, reliable advice by people who experienced an epidemic during their impressionable years. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm, I'm also struck by this contrast, um, Barry. Um, we have been very much influenced in Europe by this idea that we have to unify, become, become like the United States, right? A union, and that will allow us to better deal with problems in many areas. This is true, but certainly not in this particular area where we have seen that maybe the European Union is more unified than the United States of America. 
um, in terms of how to deal with the pandemic. And it's very striking. I mean, I don't know why that is. I mean, but uh, maybe this would be subject for another seminar, I guess, yeah. Um, next question I have is from, oops, sorry, Sakib Rani from LSE. Hasn't COVID revealed the unfortunate priorities of all the governments worldwide, particularly in terms of healthcare spending? You mean, it's not clear to me what that actually means, the unfortunate priorities or lack oh. of priorities. The, the, the lack of preparation, would, the, way, the way I would put it. And uh, yes, the, the point is uh, undeniable. It is more powerful for some countries like my own than others. Mm. Yeah. Any more thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I think there's a sort of, if you take a step back and think about the, what the role of Slack is in a system, um, I think there's, there's for decades now, I think public health systems have been looking for efficiencies uh, and uh, efficiencies optimize on one thing. Uh, but of course, in a pandemic, uh, efficiency may be your, your enemy because you have uh, just in time delivery of PPE and all kinds of other things. Um, and that, that might be quite problematic. I used to have a, a colleague who's, who studied Slack uh, in organizations, and I used to make fun of him that he was quite a slacker, but I think there's a really interesting question to be asked about how much excess capacity uh, you want and want to afford as a society, uh, rather than just optimizing on efficiency. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Sevat, you wanted to... Talk, no, I mean, I think, I think, I think an interesting point is, for example, uh, from Turkey, Erdogan's government for years invested in healthcare, and country never went under full lockdown. There was partial lockdown, and then now the they lifted the lockdown. And uh, compared to where Turkey stands in terms of development level and GDP per capita and all other major indicators, if you look at this investment in healthcare, actually nicely paid in the government investment in healthcare for, for many years, actually nicely paid off in the case of uh, COVID-19 and then uh, countries completely opened up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I might maybe add something sure. very quick. So this, this reminds me of the, of the literature, since I'm, I'm coming from the finance side, uh, of the literature on financial crisis, where, you know, when, when, we, when we have a crisis, we realize that, okay, you know, there was a crisis, let's change things, let's, let's change the policy making and all. But then as, as, as we recover from it, and then as we go through with a stable period, we start thinking, you know, famously, we start thinking that, you know, this time is different. So, you know, there's not going to be another crisis. So let's maybe go back to the efficiency idea. Let's go back to the idea of, you know, uh, basically trying to, uh, you know, prioritize as much as possible, put the, put the dynamics more into the private market's hands rather than the state. And then we get struck by another uh, by another crisis again, and then we realize that it wasn't that different. So I think it, it, it's, it's in a way, it's, it's, it's a bit of a cycle that also like as we as human beings are going through as we do with the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Good. I have two questions from Sunny Singh, who is an incoming student at LSE. Here's his first question. Um, I was curious as to whether government propaganda, for example, attempts to rally together has affected the degree of trust 
um, the trust lost, sorry, did it reduce the scaring effect or did it increase it? Shall we first deal with that question then I will read the second question? I, we should ask our political science colleagues about how to measure government propaganda, especially in the pre-Google age. Yeah, I'm gonna pass on that. That's a really tough one. Uh, obviously, I think every government is, is engaging in uh, positioning themselves tactically vis-a-vis -vis the citizenry. Uh, they all have, what's interesting to see is how different governments, maybe this is the way to answer that question, have different governments have positioned themselves during this crisis. And one of the most, I think, vivid displays of that has been when you watch across different uh, national media platforms, how governments have reported on, on a daily basis about the pandemic currently. So if you think about uh, what the UK government does, uh, where you have a government minister flanked by public health officials, when you think about Trump's uh, press conferences with Fauci and his task force, if you think about what the German government does, usually where it's quite clearly separated the political messages from the public health messages. Um, and I think there's some really interesting studies to be done about what was more effective. And I think the, the problem politicians have is that um, they want to be seen as impartial and just safeguarding public health. That's their job, that's their assignment. But of course they are deeply conflicted because their political motivations to, to maybe have pursue different trade-offs about uh, opening up the economy and what have you. So it's interesting to see, um, it'll be interesting to see in retrospect, looking back, which messages and which ways of communicating public health versus political messages were more effective. Mm -hmm. Anna, yes, please. I, I just want to add to this that um, when governments design their propaganda, they don't necessarily intend to communicate it or they don't necessarily intend to affect the entire population. Uh, but they're trying to rally their base very often. And, um, and also, like this is in the context of my comment about uh, taking into account partisanship or partisan ID. Uh, very often this information is interpreted differently by different uh, individuals. So for instance, if you take uh, the situation currently in the US um, where uh, President Trump communicates uh, certain messages, then these messages affect not the entire population in the U.S., but they are more likely to be effective with his own base, uh, rallying up his own base and making sure that whoever supported him in the previous elections uh, will continue doing so. Um, and so I think very often this propaganda might not necessarily remove the scaring, but it might create deeper divisions uh, between the different camps or the different uh, parties uh, within the same country. And so it might increase polarization rather than uh, increase trust. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Shall I move to the next question? So this is a second question of Sunny Singh, incoming student, student at LSE. Uh, with regards to the benchmarking abilities of citizens, does the data reflect the influence, if there is any, of the current information age and the internet? This would also influence the decisions citizens make to trust their government. Any thoughts about this? So I think in our, in our context, I think I would say for our results, it's less of a concern because I think controlling media and and actually through social media, through trolls affecting the people's view is a, is a recent thing. Maybe 
maybe the recent decade uh, phenomenon. Uh, when we look at recent epidemics, and then when we basically check robustness of our results, then we, we basically find that our results go through. So from an, for our paper, I think that's not of a, that's uh, less of a concern. But in the, I think the question is more about uh, what happens now. Uh, I think that's very important and it is hard to predict, uh, but I would say in uh, pseudo democracies, I think that, that, is, that that's what's happening, that the government is basically shaping attitudes and views about the government, not only about the uh, exposure to epidemic or how they handle the epidemic, but among, for many other things through uh, social media, through controlling uh, main media outlets, and also through uh, using the uh, social media tools and trolls effectively. But that's a very interesting uh, point from Sonia, actually. Okay. Then I have a question of uh, Dan Kulebiakin from UCL. Um, apart from the causing difficulties with effective government around pandemic, epidemic response and vaccinations, do you anticipate any other areas of government being adversely affected by the loss of trust caused by an epidemic? Who wants to take that up? Barry? I would have to ponder a little bit more, but it would seem to me that um, our governments are in, in, in engaged in a, in a variety of uh, different policy areas in addition to public health. Um, to pick a topic close to home, uh, uh, central bankers talk about credibility and things like uh, whether our independent central banks are really acting in the, in, in the public interest would be a uh, 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 first example, given what I usually work on that springs to mind. But uh, I think given a little more uh, time to ponder, we could come up with a bunch of different policy domains, whether if you don't uh, trust your government, uh, your compliance with its laws and regulations might well be less. Mm-hmm. Okay, no other thoughts on this? It's fundamentally important, uh, which is why this kind of research is also so important, right? It's linked, it just made me think of a paper that Anna and I did uh, recently. This idea of trust is, is related to this idea that um, of, of voluntary compliance with the state. If I trust my government, then I will be more willing, as, as Barry was saying, to obey the law to drive on the correct side of the road, to pay my taxes on time, uh, to serve in the military when asked upon, and all those things that the state needs, right? Democratic states especially can't constantly go around enforcing uh, the law and compliance. So they need their citizens to work with them. And the more trusting citizens are, the more willing they are to provide that voluntary compliance and the less the state has to do, so to speak. So of course it has huge implications potentially for the capacity of states to do what they need to do as states and to, to organize themselves. So uh, for, for that reason alone, it's really, really important. Okay, thank you. Then I move to Anthony Valion. Um, following the discussion of nation states and EU, 
would the panel have a view on how the research could be applied to international organizations such, such as the WHO, its regional arms like the Pan-American Health Organization and the United Nations as a whole? Only that it's a really interesting and important question to ask whether uh, the WHO will come out of this episode with broader public support or less, whether it will come out with its stature enhanced or diminished. Um, Gallup World Polls needs to add a question about the WHO to its future round. Right, so it's an important question, but we don't know the answer yet. Okay. I, I, I might add yeah, something. Sorry, Okun, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, just uh, just to note that uh, we had we while while working on this project, we, we came across actually a couple of papers which are showing what happens during the epidemics when you know, you know when when the WHO announces a pandemic and uh, you know compared to a case where they don't, and it appears that the the world pays much more attention to a country when when the WHO announces a pandemic and there is more donation there there is more aid that flows to that country. So to the extent that this pandemic announcement was late or you know. Uh, was done inappropriately or, you know, was not timed correctly for some countries, there is a case to be made that, you know, uh, people may actually, you know, uh, lose their trust because that will also come with, with, with extra burden if, if you, you know, if you skip a country while, uh, you know, uh, experiencing a, a pandemic or, or if you announce that later than uh, what's ideal. Okay, good. Oh, yeah, Anna? I just wanted to add that there is research that shows that uh, trust in international organizations in general uh, is correlated with partisan ideology, partisan ID. Um, so individuals who are more likely to be skeptical towards international organizations might actually become more skeptical of that, of that because of pandemics. Um, and so if we're talking about some polarization that is happening between people who are becoming more skeptical or less trusting of their government versus people who are becoming um, more entrenched in their positions and supporting the government, then it might also apply to how people view international organizations and the same polarization might happen also with respect to attitudes towards WHO, uh, UN, etc. And uh, government messages to their supporters might also affect how those supporters ultimately view um, international organizations. Okay, fine. So that I have uh, a last question here of John de Lima of Ateneo de Manila University. Would this scar on said specific group in questionable years have considerable role in addressing ineffective populist responses to epidemics and pandemics? Great so question. I, I might add something on, on that front because I, I just came across this paper uh, on, on past, past experience in terms of being exposed to, an expo uh, to, to a corruption case in Italy uh, and how that later on impacts on people's preferences in terms of voting for the, for the populist parties. And it seems that it's actually the opposite in the sense that, you know, people who are losing their trust due to the corruption scandal, they are actually voting for the, for the populist party. So it's, it's definitely not a good sign that, you know, uh, what we're finding in our uh, project, in our research may actually translate to the strengthening of the, of the populist parties. And my hypothesis is exactly the opposite. 
Uh-huh. I think the pandemic has been bad for populists, uh, has been bad for business for populists in general, because it has done two things. It has uh, led to a rally around the flag. It has made centrist politicians seem, uh, put, put them uh, on center stage, so to speak, in a way that they maybe hadn't been before. And the other thing that populists really don't like is uh, science and expertise. Um, and again, to the extent that they have come to the forefront, uh, populists don't have a whole lot to say uh, about that. Um, so in, in a way, one of the very few things that have come out of this pandemic that I think are actually quite good uh, for Western democracies generally and their stability is that um, this has been bad for populists. I think, I think this remains to be seen. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I think, I, think, I think this remains to be seen, but I think the populists are also particularly good at putting the blame on others and, and the communication. So uh, we will see what's going to happen in the U.S. with the, with the elections and also, mm-hmm. and also in, in other uh, continental European countries. Um, I agree. Uh, I think conditional on everything else, that should, people should basically uh, vote less for populist parties. But I think, given recently, given how uh, the how good they are in communica- uh, communication and uh, basically grabbing the, uh, the the masses, I think I think they may be actually even more successful. It, it strikes me that there is a lot of diversity, isn't it? Um, we we see some countries like Germany, where clearly the the, the person in power is, is reinforced, but then in France. It's not at all, and, and, and I don't know, in Italy. So it, it looks like there is a lot of diversity there, and, and mm-hmm. maybe quite a lot of surprises that uh, we don't know yet. Huh? We'll have yeah. to reconvene. Yeah, next time. Okay. I think time is uh, running. Uh, I think we, we, we should come to a close now, um, and um, I would like to thank uh, you all, especially the the three speakers who are presenting this uh, great research. It was certainly quite uh, original, creative, and, and illuminating about some important issues. I also want to thank Anna and Chris for their uh, critical comments that helped us to discuss all this. And, and, and lastly, then the, the participants by for formulating these uh, quite uh, interesting questions. So. Um, thank you all, and uh, I wish you the best, and take good care of yourself in these testing times. Goodbye. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.